Well, good morning. I want to remind you that uh, this Wednesday is uh, for our Wednesday night meal. It's when we're going to be using all the proceeds uh, towards uh, sponsoring Kelson Miller and her uh, mission work this summer at the Dominican. And so um, be a great meal. And if you can't come to the meal, then you can at any time, uh, including right now, uh, you can open the Summers app and you can click on the Give link and you'll see a drop down there for Dominican. And so you can still contribute uh, to that mission effort uh, even if you don't come Wednesday night. But you will miss a delicious meal and some good fellowship uh, if you don't come. So I just want to keep that in front of us and uh, give you an opportunity uh, to uh, contribute to that uh, for, uh, for that good effort. So, um, there's a slide about it. It's this Wednesday. So, I hope you are uh, following along in a regular uh, Bible reading. We've been talking about that now for the last uh, few weeks and uh, about reading through Scripture this year and, and doing it together, knowing some of you have been doing this for many years and some of you have your own reading plan. And so, but, uh, you know, our tendency is to kind of pick our way through the Bible. We kind of, we kind of pick and choose and, and, and skim through and we lift little nuggets of inspiration, little nuggets of encouragement uh, that we can post on social media. And so there is a discipline that's required to stick to a a consistent daily reading of Scripture. And, And for what? What's the purpose? Well, the psalmist says in Psalm 119 and verse 9, how can a young person, this is, how can any person, right, maintain a pure life? How can we do that? Well, by guarding it according to God's instructions. So how do we maintain a holy life, a pure life? It's by guarding it. It's by using God's Word as the boundaries between what is holy and what is unholy. And so this short verse holds an eternal truth about God and and that God is holy and His Word leads to holiness. And so if you're following the, the read Scripture schedule that we presented a few weeks ago, uh, you should be uh, approaching or have approached Leviticus about this time. And I've heard on one, more than one occasion that Leviticus is where Bible reading plans go to die, right? And so when people, people start off real good and they get to Leviticus and it's like, ah, oh, I forget about it. Yeah, this is crazy stuff. Or they skip over it. And so just throw the whole plan out the window. But I hope that when you leave today, that you will have a, a better appreciation for the modern application of this ancient text. And so Leviticus, It's where we are. And so Leviticus was known by the Hebrews over the centuries as, and he called, or and he said, which is the first words of this writing. That's how they referred to it, right? Because we talked about how the Hebrews didn't use titles like we use titles today. So they referred kind of to to the opening words of a particular text. And so Leviticus picks up where Exodus leaves off. And and the word Leviticus itself means kind of according to priest or that which concerns priest. And so it's a description of of this content of this writing. And so the the Hebrew tribe of the family of Levi was designated by God as the Israelites' priestly family from whom the nation's priests would come, okay, to, to serve God's purposes. And so the Israelites are encamped at the foot of Mount Sinai after God having freed them from slavery. And, and Moses meets with God in this tent of meeting that God has, has designated 
for where he will have these conversations with Moses about what he expects and kind of the ongoing uh, plans for these Israelites here in the desert. And so, so Moses goes and receives instructions from God. So Leviticus chapter 1, look what he says here. The first verse, Then the Lord called Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting. So, th- so this whole writing here starts with, the Lord called Moses and spoke to him. If you flip all the way over to the end of Leviticus, and no, you're not getting out of it that easily, but I look at the very end of Leviticus here in chapter 27, verse 34. It says, these are the commandments, his bookends, these are the commandments which the Lord commanded Moses to tell the Israelites at Mount Sinai. And so these instructions are to guide the Israelites on how they can live together as God's distinct people, His his set-aside people in the middle of a godless society. How do we live the way God wants us to live in the middle of a society that is anti-God or just doesn't care about God whatsoever? And so you've heard the arguments against Christian living. of Why why do Christians... So why do y'all Christians pick and choose which of God's commandments that you want to follow, right? Because we, you hold up the ones about adultery and, and homosexuality, but what about that whole mixing a couple of different threads together in your clothing? How come you all ignore that sort of stuff? So let, let me try to frame in this way today that I hope will help us kind of going forward. We Christians keep all of the laws in Leviticus that are consistent with the purpose of Jesus Christ. Okay, So what I'm saying here is there are three categories of laws that, that I want us to consider that are given here that, that kind of break down God's instructions. And so the first one is, is civil laws. And so you have civil laws that God gave that, that govern the nation of Israel. We, have, we live under civil laws. Uh, if you're a citizen of North Little Rock, you have civil laws for the city. We have you know, state laws, civil laws that govern us as, as residents of Arkansas. And then obviously you know, national laws that govern us as residents of the United States. So civil laws uh, kind of, kind of uh, govern behavior and punishment, uh, that sort of thing, punishment for crimes. So when you think about Christ in that reference, Jesus didn't come to establish a nation. Jesus established what He called His church, His body, which is made up of people from all nations, all tribes, all languages. So we today as the church in the New Covenant, we are not bound to the civil laws that we find here, civil regulations that govern Israel as a nation state. And then there are ceremonial laws that God lays out for them given about ritual purity and the system of sacrifices and how they were to worship and approach God in worship. And so these laws were designed to illustrate God's holiness and His solution that He's going to provide for humanity's unholiness specifically the Israelites in, in this particular situation. So the, the letter that, that we know as Hebrews, that we read Hebrews, says that all of these ritual laws that we read about here in Leviticus, they all point to Jesus. See, God established these laws to help Israel be pure in the presence of God. But they all point to Jesus who makes us pure before God. And so we have Jesus, so we don't need the rituals and the ceremonies and the regulation. And then finally, there are moral laws. 
that God established. And so these declare what God sees as opposition to His holy nature or what's consistent with an unholy nature. And so He draws a contrast to those. But, but Jesus affirmed these, right? When we read about um, the, the record of Jesus' life, He affirmed those laws. He obeyed those without wavering. And then He enables Christians, by the power of His Holy Spirit, to obey those moral laws also. So, yes, we do set aside some of these laws in Leviticus because they're no longer consistent with the purpose of Jesus. And so we obey and apply certain others because they are designed to guide us in terms of how we are to live and reflect God's holiness. And so don't, don't ignore Leviticus. Don't ignore it. And so Paul writes about this concept, 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 16, what does he say? Every Scripture, Apostle Paul writes this, every Scripture is inspired by God and useful for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the person dedicated to God may be capable and equipped for every good work. So Paul was talking about Leviticus. He didn't have this collection that we call the New Testament. He had what we call the Old Testament. He had the old law. He's pointing to that. He says all of this Scripture is profitable for teaching and for understanding how we are to live in the presence of God. He's talking about Genesis. He's talking about Hosea. He's talking about uh, all the other 36 writings here with Leviticus in the Old Testament. And so what is Leviticus expected to correct in us? How can it equip us today? Well, first of all, when we read through Leviticus, it should cause us to approach God more reverently. When we understand the nature of God as best that we can, and He reveals to us in our human understanding, we should approach God more reverently. And so the sin of Genesis 3 wasn't just disobedience. It was a rejection of the holiness of God. And so we said, well, I don't, I don't believe God was sovereign. You know, His Word's not final. People would argue that. I don't believe... He doesn't know what's best for me. Well, if that's the case, then God's no better than me, right? If God doesn't know what's best for me, He's no better than me. Because I know what's best for me. That's human thinking. And so that's, that's rejecting His holiness. So God gives them these commands. And He says this in Leviticus chapter 11... In verse 44, he says, For I am the Lord your God, and you are to sanctify yourselves and be holy, because I am holy. In 45, he goes on, For I am the Lord who brought you up from the land of Egypt to be your God, and you are to be holy, because I am holy. And so over and over again, God says, I am the Lord. I'm the Lord. He's in a class all by Himself. And so you see through Genesis that the God of Abraham is not merely one of many gods. He's not a regional deity. He's not restricted to the Israelites, right? He's not restricted to to some geographic region. Egypt, where they had just come from, had numerous gods, numerous deities who ruled over very specific areas of their life. And so the land to which they were going, God was leading them to, has people who worship these regional gods. But God is the Lord over all creation. All creation. He's not a regional deity, and He is not a rival deity either. And so God declares, and He demonstrates that He has 
all power. And the Lord of lords proved very blatantly in ten plagues leading to these people's release. God is sovereign. And He also does not tolerate sin. And so God is teaching His people that there is a distinction between Him and everything else. Not just everyone else, everything else. He is the Creator, which is why He places boundaries within this Israelite community. And so He says this, this is not just to make a rule. In, in chapter 10 and verse 10 here, He says, as, it's, it's, as well as to distinguish between the holy and the common, between the unclean and the clean. He says, here are boundaries that I'm establishing for you. And so over and over again, it seems that, that God is, is delineating these categories, holy and common. And so then under common, you, you would have a distinguish between clean and unclean. And so it's pretty much kind of like a, a spectrum, if you think of it that way. You have unclean, to transition to clean and, and holy. It's kind of this spectrum of, of how God views things. And so clean would be the normal state of things. And unclean doesn't always mean sinful, which is why there are some seemingly random laws about unclean stuff that, that doesn't seem to be sinful. It's just unclean. And so unclean means unsuitable for God's presence. And so it might be sinful or it might not be. And, and, and we can understand the, the difference because there are conditions of our environment that make them unsuitable for certain situations, yet they're not unlawful. You, you wouldn't feed your kids from utensils you randomly picked up off the ground, right? That, most of you wouldn't, I don't think. You know, that's not unlawful, but it's certainly not suitable. We would say that for sure. And so something that is unclean can be made clean through a process of purification. So God established a, a, a process of making something clean. I was thinking about um, you know, a, a hazardous material situation. And so somebody would be in, a, in the presence of a hazardous material and, and they are quarantined to that area. And you have to go through a, a, a washing, a purification process before you can move from this unclean area into a, a, a safe or a clean area. And so it's kind of that same process of, of, of moving through. So something that is unclean can be made clean through purification. Think about your vehicle. You should never let positive and negative cables, if you're trying to, to jump your battery, never let them touch, right? And if you want to let them, if you want that to happen, look it up on YouTube. Don't do it yourself. Find somebody else who already did that. But bad things happen when those two come into contact, right? So when God's people allow the unclean to interact with what is holy, then bad things happen. Holy means it's reserved for a special purpose. And in this case, the special purpose is God's glory. It's for God's glory. And so who determines what is holy? Who determines what is holy? It has to be the only one in a position to demonstrate holiness. And that's holy God. He has to determine it. So God commanded people and He commanded places and He commanded things and He commanded times of the year to be made holy and told them how it could be made holy. And so whatever God designated as holy must be treated differently from, from the common things of life. And so there are a lot of, as we would say, you know, forests and trees. There are a lot of trees in Leviticus and it's easy to get lost in the trees and miss the forest. And so that, that's why some give up reading in Leviticus. They skip over it. 
because they feel like they're wading through you know, all these trees and they can't see the forest. God weaves the same thread through Leviticus that He started in Genesis. He hasn't stopped. It's one connecting thread. And so we must approach God, relationship with God, based on His terms and not our terms. And so over and over again, people brought sacrifices. And over and over again, Scripture tells us, and they did just as the Lord commanded. But what if they didn't? What if they didn't do as the Lord commanded? What if they based it on what made sense to them instead of God's own Word? Well, Leviticus chapter 10 and verse 1, we find an instance of this. Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu, each took his fire pan and put fire in it, set incense on it, and presented strange fire before the Lord, which He had not commanded them to do. What made it strange? That's not the way God said to do it. So fire went out from the presence of the Lord and consumed them so that they died before the Lord. And then their family members had to come and drag their bodies, not just outside the tabernacle. They had to drag their bodies outside the camp because they were unclean. Their dead bodies were unclean. They had to drag them far away from the camp. And so we have to recognize this infinite difference and distance between us and Almighty God, between the Creator and the creation. God is showing that there is a vast difference, a vast barrier between a holy God and an unholy people. And so this isn't just about acts of worship. This is about attitude of worship. And so we don't just gather in the presence of a holy God. We live in the presence of holy God. In fact, Paul reminds us in Galatians chapter 3 and verse 27, for all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. We wear Christ. He's with us all the time. We are clothed in Him. And so this is a God who deserves all of our reverence, all of our worship, because we are clothed in His glory. Jesus who in fact is described as the brightness of the glory of God. When we are baptized into Christ, we are covered in that glory. Not of ourselves, but by Jesus Christ. And so Leviticus also teaches us that we have to take sin more seriously. We have to be more serious about sin. What makes something sinful? What makes it sinful? Well, Scripture's clear at how sin is when we fail or when we refuse to obey God's commands. It's, it's missing the mark. You, know, you think of a, a bullseye. You, you miss the mark. You're off center. And, and, and so the holiness is the center point. That's the mark. And when we miss it, then, then, then that's, that can be sin. And so sin is offensive to God. And these sacrifices that God institutes here in Leviticus are reminders of how sin deserves punishment. And so in Leviticus 20... You get to there and you read over and over again God's judgment on sin. And so He says, shall be put to death. And then, then shall be put to death. And this happens and you shall be put to death. And if Leviticus was a song, this would be the chorus. <laughs> right? We get to the chorus. There's some stuff in Leviticus that's hard to read. It is hard to read. Why would we want to worship a God like that? Why would you want to worship a God like this? That... This is where those looking for a way out will find it. Right here. 
Because I'm not going to worship a God who just wants to kill everybody. I'm not going to worship angry old God. You know those, you know those conversations? You've been in those conversations with people. These are verses, by the way, that, that turn off the faith switch of our kids when they get to college. Why is that? Because if you're 18 and 19 and, and 20 years old and you grew up in a house of faith and you only heard about Jesus loves me, this I know, and, and God is so good, and blue skies and rainbows, you might feel hoodwinked when you finally get your nose in Leviticus. Who is that, right? But God saw fit to preserve this. Don't shy away from it at any age. It's hard for us to understand God's actions within our human capabilities. God acknowledged that. It's time for us to do the same, right? But here's what we can know. God takes sin more seriously than we allow ourselves to imagine. God takes sin more seriously than I allow myself to think. Because I can scare myself if I think that God thinks more of what is wicked and evil than I do. Especially if I'm the one involved in it. Paul tells us in Romans that the wages of sin is death. And Paul didn't imagine that. He didn't come up with that on his own. God said that from the beginning. What did he say in Genesis? The day you eat from this forbidden tree, what? You, you shall surely, what? Die. From the beginning. Paul didn't make this up. He's restating what God had been saying from the beginning. The penalty for sin is death. If you quit paying your mortgage, you're going to get a knock on the door, or your rent, you're going to get a knock on the door because you know what's going to happen? You're going to get evicted. You can't stay there, right? God does not owe us life. God doesn't owe us anything. Not one single thing. Life is a gift. And when we rebel against the provider of that life, we stand to be evicted. Spiritually today, and then one day permanently separated from a God if we continue willingly, willfully sinning. And so these Israelites have been living among a people there in Egypt whose, whose value system, whose boundary lines between morality and immorality, they were defined by standards that were determined by their rulers in charge. The king said, this is what we'll allow and this is what we won't allow. And so their boundary lines were completely different than what God expected. God needs His people to know that He is the true source of morality. And His standards are not a standard. His standards are the standard. The standard. There are none above and everything else is below. And so God's having to change their worldview. They've been living there for hundreds of years in the, just saturated in this culture, right? Because they've lived with one perspective for so long. And so in order for them as Abraham's descendants to realize the blessing of God's promise, we read in chapter 18 in verse 24, God says, Do not defile yourselves with any of these things, for the nations that I'm about to drive out before you have been defiled with all these things. What things? Go back and read. It's all this stuff we're talking about. Therefore, the land has become unclean, and I have brought the punishment for its iniquity upon it, so that the land has vomited out its inhabitants. You yourselves must obey my statutes and my regulations and must not do any of these abominations, both the native citizen and the resident foreigner in your midst. 
For the people who were in the land before you have done all these abominations, and the land has become unclean. So do not make the land vomit you out, because you defile it, just as it has vomited out the nations that were before you. For if anyone does any of these abominations, that person who does them will be cut off from the midst of the people. You must obey my charge not to practice any of the abominable statutes that have been done before you, so that you do not defile yourself by them. I am the Lord, your God. And so our responsibility is not to judge the world around us. God, through Jesus Christ, has already done that. Our responsibility is to keep the charge of God. Keep the charge of God. And there's another indication of how sin does not occur in a bubble. Look what God says here. He indicates how those who were living in sin in this promised land, they caused their own eviction. How are the Israelites moving in? Because God has evicted the ones who were living there. And so His graphic illustration is that the land vomited it out. Yeah, what does that mean in Hebrew? Vomit? That's what it means. The land, the picture is there and God certainly intended for us to get the picture. And He warns His people of the same fate should they decide to ignore His instruction. And so, of course, we know this will come to be the case. You read the rest of the book and we know how things turn out, right? And so is it possible, is it possible that what feels natural and normal to us is actually detestable by God? Is that possible? Absolutely. Absolutely it is. So look at some of the, the, the laws of our land and, and the rights that are upheld, right? The lifestyles that are revered and the cultural sacred cows that, that we hold on to. Look at the breakdown of the family and the distortion of marriage and the disregard for human life. Look at the language and the gossip and the anger and the hatred and the lust for wealth and success. Back in Exodus 20, God called Moses up a mountain and He gave him the first commandment. And He said what? You shall have no other gods before Me. No other gods before Me. We may be far removed from the Garden of Eden, but we are not so far removed from the idolatry of self that led to the sin that happened in the Garden, and neither were the Israelites. So do we think we have a more reliable moral compass in this 21st century enlightened age than they did then? For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. What a desperate verse. Romans chapter 3 and verse 23. That's a desperate verse. We are all unholy. We are all unworthy. We are all deserving of death. And Leviticus spells that out for these Israelites. Yet God in His great mercy and His holiness, He provides a way for them to remain in relationship with God. In spite of their wicked choices. In spite of their selfish ways. Remember this covenant. The covenant here that God entered into. The covenant was initiated by God. This is His invitation. Not the Israelites. Not ours. God is the one who invites. So every sin had to be accounted for. 
And we cannot remove our own guilt before God. Prophet Isaiah tells us in Isaiah chapter 64 and verse 6 that all of us have become like one who is unclean. And all our righteous acts are like filthy rags. Look that up. Look that up. If you think God mints His words. English spares us. Look it up. Look that verse up. We all shrivel up like a leaf. And like the wind, our sins sweep us away. God takes our sin seriously. Do we take sin seriously? And so He institutes these sacrifices that the people are required to offer because of their sin against God. Meticulous, tedious, bloody, burning sacrifices. Not because God is cruel and twisted, but because He's patient. And He's merciful. And He's loving towards us. Because what's the alternative? God's alternative is just wipe us out. (laughs) Just wipe us out. But instead, God allowed this Day of Atonement in Israel. This Day of Atonement where the, the high priest would take two male goats for a sin offering. And so, he he would cast lots. Sort of like rolling dice in a way, you know, kind of our concept. And, and one would fall to the goat and one would fall to God. And so the one that fell to God would be sacrificed. That goat would be sacrificed. The other one would become what's called an azazel. And the azazel means scapegoat. And so the other one would be set free into the wilderness symbolizing the carrying away of the people's sin. But they had to do this every year. Every year on this day they had to do it. The high priest would come and be the one who would carry all of this out. Why? Because for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Think about your, think about your, friend, your friend circles, right? We got, everybody's got a variety of friends in your circle, probably, right? And so you've got one friend who's the life of the party. One friend you love to have around, super, super cool, right? You know, their, their, their IG is lit. If you don't know what that means, look it up because I had to. <laughs> but you, you got, maybe you've got a friend who's super compassionate. You've got one who's always loving on someone. You know, the considerate friend, always lifting everybody up. Then you've got that one friend who's a little bit weird. You've got that one friend who's a little bit, who's a little bit outside. Of, of, and if, if you say, well, I don't have that friend, then it's you. Just know that it's you, right? And so, but but you've got one that's kind of serious. You know, not really, not really much of a sense of humor, you know, and you, you love them, you still invite them to the cookout, but, but, but if you're honest, they're kind of a little bit of a downer. They're a little bit of a downer. That's, that's Leviticus in the Leviticus is that friend in Scripture. It could be a little bit of a downer. But when you hold it up, when you hold it up in the full picture of God's Scripture, you see how the point of Leviticus is to point us forward to the grace of God that's only found in Jesus Christ. And so Paul will write in Romans chapter 3 and verse 21, but now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known to which the law and the prophets testify, to which Leviticus and the others point to. This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference between Jew and Gentile, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And all are justified freely by His grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. So how can a holy God dwell among an unholy people? 
How can a holy God execute His justice against sin and accept sinners at the same time? And understanding the the purpose behind God's meticulous and burdensome requirements of Leviticus, folks, that should make us love Jesus even more passionately. Even more so. Jesus is our scapegoat. Jesus is our Azazel. Jesus is the one that God laid our sin upon and sent away out of His presence for us. He is our sin offering. And here's the th- God's wisdom. He's also our high priest. He, God requires penalty to be paid for our sin. And He Himself becomes both the sacrifice and the one who offers the sacrifice. We just need to marvel, marvel at the wisdom of God. Because otherwise we're doomed. We are doomed. We are sentenced. We are dead. We are dead. But God wants to dwell with His people so much that He would give His own life to ensure that could happen. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in Him should not perish, but have eternal life. John 3.16 is one of those beautiful portraits that we put on a wall. But you cannot understand John 3.16 if you skip Leviticus, we do all this. In, how, how do we live together? How do we live together as God's distinct people in the middle of a godless society? How do we do that? We do it in Jesus. And so in Leviticus twenty twenty six, God says, "You must be holy to me, because I, the Lord, am holy, and I have set you apart from the other peoples to be mine." So God is the one who determined this is how it's going to be. This is the way it has to be. And God determined that Jesus would be the way, the truth, and the life. And that no one would come to the Father except through Him. And then Jesus determined that He would obey His Father. And now we have to determine what are we going to do because of this? How are we going to live because of this? Leviticus, apart from God's big story, it doesn't make sense. It's weird. It's repulsive. It's ancient. But in its place, in this record of God's instructions to His people, Leviticus reveals the beauty of the Gospel. Leviticus reveals the beauty of the sacrifice of Jesus. It reveals the grace of God. And it reveals how much we need to be thankful for His wisdom behind it. And one of the hardest hurdles that that we may have to overcome and and, and the one that a Jew had to overcome after the death of Jesus was that God accepted Jesus as the one sacrifice for all time. A stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles. And many still can't accept it. It's still hard to accept. It's hard for us too. Because we're still trying to... God, you see what I did? You see that good? Did that count? Did that work for something? Is that you adding that to my account, God? Because God must need more, right? 
God must need more. He must demand more. He must expect more. So I must do more. But what we must do is look to Him as our moral compass and lean on Him in our mortal weakness and trust in Him for His immortal promise. And while Jesus became our sacrifice for sin for all time, we must now listen to the Word of God. As Paul tells us in Romans chapter 12 and verse 1, Therefore I exhort you, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a sacrifice, alive, holy, and pleasing to God, which is your reasonable service. What does that look like? Mike read it this morning. Go back and read it again. God tells us what it looks like to be holy today. It's not easy. It's not easy. But Jesus did not die so that we could continue to live any way we want to. Jesus died so that God could live with us for eternity. And brothers and sisters, if that doesn't convict you, that's all the Gospel's got. <laughs> that's all it's got. That's it. There is no more sacrifice for sin. And God tells us that too. So this morning, are you living a holy life? Are you, have you set your life apart in view of God's merciful gift of His Son Jesus Christ? So that every action, every word, every thought is taken into account, is measured against God's measurement for holiness. And we're not perfect. If we were perfect, then was God the fool for letting His Son die? We're not perfect. So Christ had to die so that we could be perfected. And it's through Him that God has chosen to make it that way. And when you confess Jesus as your Lord and Savior, the Son of God, and you give over your life to Him, you, are, you submit your life, baptize with Christ. That's dying. That's dying to yourself. Meeting Him in the grave of baptism. Buried with Him so that God can raise you up pure and holy, not in you, but in His Son, covered in His pure radiance. Give you the gift of His Spirit, His wonderful, holy Spirit to guide, to remind, and to place hold in your life that doorway to eternity. That's what God has done for us. What will you do for Him? How will you live for Him? How will you honor Him? This morning as we're assembled together, if we can pray for you in a way that encourages you, that strengthens you, we want to do that. If we can celebrate with you as you decide to make Jesus Christ the Lord of your life and submit to Him in baptism, we want to celebrate with you as you make that decision today. But in any case, as we leave here today and we enter into our lives once again, how will you live this week holy and set apart for the God who redeemed you
from the certain death that you were destined for. As we stand and sing, if we can help you in any way, will you come?